I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about the bewitching hour. On today's show, Amanda and I will dive back into the MCU by taking a close look at the first two episodes of Marvel's Disney Plus series, WandaVision. It's all coming up on The Big Picture. This episode is brought to you by Walmart Plus. With a Walmart Plus membership, you'll save on movie night. A Paramount Plus subscription is included, so you never run out of things to watch. Plus, you get free delivery on all your favorite essentials. And you even get gas discounts to save on picking up your friends. Walmart Plus members save on all this, plus so much more. Start a free 30-day trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus essential plan only. Separate registration required. $35 order minimum. See walmart.com slash plus for details. At Walt Disney World Resort, magic is found in spontaneity, the unplanned, the unexpected, an inside joke born in the Haunted Mansion queue, a surprise stitch sighting in Tomorrowland, watching fireworks from your room. These memories aren't made from predetermined plans, but manifested from simply being present and together in the most magical place. Find your moment at Walt Disney World Resort. Okay, Amanda, a little tease. We're not yet getting into WandaVision. First, we're going to start with a conversation about part two of Tiger, which is the two-part Tiger Woods miniseries that has appeared on HBO and HBO Max. What'd you think of part two? Well, it was obviously more to my personal interest set and also to the storylines that I remember. I know about Tiger Woods. I mean, I know that he's an excellent golfer. I knew that he had an intense relationship with a very a larger-than-life father figure. Um, as do all men in the public eye, it would seem. And I then knew about the massive scandal that uh, kind of un- developed in the National Enquirer and then became just a talking point for like many weeks nationally about Tiger Woods' many affairs and his second life in Vegas and the disintegration of his marriage just like live on the Today Show. Yeah, so last we saw this film, it closed with a significant tease of Rachel Yucatel, who is the one of his mistresses at the time and a woman who was really, I think, the primary focus of all of the, the women who were not Tiger's wife in this story. And she appears at the end of the first part of the documentary as a, as a tease to the second part, which I thought was a very effective piece of filmmaking, as we talked about earlier mm-hmm. last week. And... I thought her portrayal in the story was interesting. I think the film, in part because she chose to participate, sought to create an empathetic portrait of her and or at least allow her to discuss her relationship with Tiger on terms that I think most people didn't necessarily get to hear, which is to say she says that she was in love with this person and that they were engaged in a true and authentic relationship and not this kind of dalliance that I think a lot of people saw it as. Um, what did you think about the Rachel you could tell portrayal? Amazing to hear from her, and she has a, a transfixing uh, screen presence. I'll just leave it at that. That's a, you know, that's I think a way of the, describing it. The entrance uh, in the end of part one is is very well done, and you know, I, I agree with you. I think. So often in all of these stories in the tabloids, you know, with like a, a marriage breaks up and if it if there's another woman involved, it the focus becomes on the other woman instead of the marriage itself. In the Tiger Woods scandal, she was kind of the lead of of many women of who were all in the front, but it did she did shoulder a lot of it. And so to give her t- the chance, and, and she says, she's like, if you Google me, it's still Rachel Ucatel, Tiger Woods' mistress. So to at least, you know, hear the other side of the experience, even if she's obviously going to play it, um, but it's her perspective. So she's going to tell this story from, uh, hit the highlights as, as she would want them to be shared. I thought this was interesting, but I just also think that there should be an entire documentary just about how this particular scandal played out in the media, um, in 2009. It's fascinating. And the documentary is rightly putting it through the lens of what it says about Tiger Woods and what it says, like, you know, they make the connection to 
his father and what is revealed in the first episode about his father's infidelities and his mind state and a little bit about the tension between his picture-perfect public image and, you know, what he was doing in his private life and also how it affects his golf. And all of that, I think, is, like, very valid and uh, notable in, in the Tiger Woods narrative. But I just am fascinated that this still happened the way that it did. It was, I mean, it was such a big thing in 2009. It was a massive, massive story. Like, there are multiple morning show segments on it. All of these women were interviewed. It was every, like, it was all you could talk about um, in a way that I think we're more celebrity driven than ever, but also it, it was just like a strange monoculture event. And that has a lot to do with kind of where tabloid media was at the time. Like 2009 TMZ has been around for like, I think four years. Um, social media exists, but it's not dominant. We have iPhones, but like we don't record everything all of the time yet. So there's this, there's this moment both in, and like reality stuff is just starting also. So our relationship to like who is famous and, and how, what makes someone famous and what we expect of a famous person is still like, it's in transition, but it's still old school. So I think it's like kind of a perfect storm, but it's very strange. And it like to, after I watched it, I was like, Tyra Woods is not the only person, only mega famous person who has had multiple affairs. And it's like, how not even is, close. Not even close. It's so strange that this is the one. So I think it, you're right to identify it as a kind of a tipping point. And you think about all of the, just think about athletes over the last 75 years in the, in the public eye. Obviously, there were tacit understandings between the media, say in the 1950s, that if you were aware of a baseball player as a particularly carousing or unfaithful member of society, you just wouldn't dime on them, you know, and there were, there were I mean, kind JFK. of JFK, JFK, the, the list is, is vast for people like this. I think a couple of things happened in the tiger case that are interesting. One is that, um, I, a person probably there, there are a, a select few people who have been more famous in the world of sport and, and internationally too. I mean, he was, a, he's a global icon. So that, that is a factor Two, It was almost unavoidable because of the nature of the revelation around the car accident that he had. Yeah. And the fact that it happened over Thanksgiving, over a long weekend, which I think amplified the intrigue around this story, not to mention the fact that as the film goes to lengths to, to portray, the, the National Enquirer was on this story before this event happened. And so there, it, there was this breadcrumb trail, and, and Neil Bolton in this movie essentially becomes the avatar of the, the, the revelry that the tabloid culture took in telling this story and revealing these facts. And... I do wonder, I did, I did, I wanted to ask you essentially if, if this happened today, if it happened to LeBron, Steph Curry, someone who is as visible as Tiger, do you think that the media would be as gleeful and as scurrilous as maybe it was 10 or 11 years ago? You're right to point out that how it happened, uh, certainly affects the coverage because it's not just what you know, but it's the order in which you know it. And so this did, because of the catch and kill that you referenced, it does come out with the, um, the, the, the car crash, I guess, and the circumstances of the car crash. And then you remember the, the Taiwanese news viral videos? Yes, do you remember when that was a thing? And they do show a bit of it in the documentary, yes. but I have a vivid memory of the Tiger Woods reenactment. I think that's when I became aware of those videos. And again, this was like YouTube definitely existed, but viral videos were still like that. Everyone saw the same ones. They weren't, you know, and like your mom knew about this. So absolutely. The way this was presented was first and foremost, like a wife being really angry at a husband and the, you know, like even I remember the detail of the golf club smashing the car and I, and I don't think maybe we would get to a responsible place about it sooner now, but everyone's reaction to that is still going to be um, knee jerk reaction. It's salacious. And I, I don't think people would be super responsible. And from there, then the people start coming out. I would hope that there would be a little bit more uh, responsibility about some of like the, the, the power dynamics and that sort of stuff going on. And also some of like 
the the racial undertones as well in covering Tiger Woods. So, you know, there are a lot of like complicated things here, uh, but I don't really ever trust tabloid media or the general public to like get things tonally right the first time. Yeah. And if the first part is an attempt to show essentially a, a, a boiling pot of water, you know, that's slowly and slowly and slowly getting hotter and hotter and hotter. The pressure of being a successful athlete, the pressure mounted on him by his father and the way that his father essentially managed and introduced him to the world. And then kind of the expectation that he set for him, this is obviously meant to be the boiling over. I was most curious to see how the film portrayed the aftermath of the scandal. Cause like I was in the media when the scandal happened, I was covering sports and covering pop culture I'm very familiar with that story. I followed it closely from both a tabloid perspective and a journalistic perspective. There was some good work done on it, but you know, Tiger, as they show, essentially apologizes publicly in a, in a very odd forum, um, which the film shows us and the sort of like almost the chilling nature to what he felt he had to do and who he surrounded himself with when he made that apology and then disappears for a while. And when he disappears, you know, we learned a few years ago in this great Ray Thompson feature in ESPN, the magazine that he kind of slipped into a life of military training in some respects. Um, And that obviously uh, greatly damaged his body, which we see in the film that we see him, the injuries that he sustains over the years on on the course and also in these training segments. And I think that uh, there's something about that story that is still so unbelievable to me so that that is so much more so much more psychologically heavy than this guy slept with a bunch of women in las vegas that feels so much more complex and inexplicable that um while i i I liked the way that the film told it i also in the same way that you feel like you could do a two-hour documentary about the tabloid execution of the tiger Woods story also this story i'm like there's a two hour movie here. Like I, I, I want to know more. I want to hear from all the soldiers that he trained with. I want to understand what actually the purpose of this moment in his life was. And we do get some of it, but I, I guess I, I, I was left wanting even more. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, that is like a psychologically complex, like baffling, uh, just, you know, mythological story almost. Right. Like, cause with everything that it involves, I, it's when you do start to feel the absence of Tiger himself in the documentary, but, mm. but like, but, but also maybe not because I'm not convinced that if you sat Tiger down, no matter how many hours you get with him, do you think that he has like a psychological understanding of his own choices and is going to be able to sit there on a camera and just be like, so here's why I did it. And here's what it's about. Like some of this is about a person who does not seem, um, who has emotions but doesn't seem in touch with them, does not seem to know how to channel them, um, is really overwhelmed by all of the pressure put on him, all of the kind of the things surrounding him in his life, and so is doing some really wild stuff in order to access that. Yeah, I, I don't know if we can say whether it's repression or protection. You know, is he protecting himself? Because as the years go by, there are fewer and fewer Tiger Woods interviews. There are fewer and fewer Tiger Woods on camera appearances in which he is not being paid. Um, he he just he he did recede from view and and he was I don't want to say fortunate because he obviously earned all of his success in many ways. But when he comes out the other side of this, when he returns to the game, which we saw a couple of years ago and has been ongoing since. the memory that we were left with was really not this scandal, at least not for me as somebody who has cared about watching him as an athlete for the last 20 plus years. I think people just, they still want to feel close to the sport conquering person that he was. You know, I, while I'm interested in his psychology and of course, anybody who has lived the kind of life that he has, you do want something like think back to the last dance when we, those moments when Michael Jordan would be handed an iPad and look at what someone had to say about him and the way that he would react. Like, that told you everything you wanted to know about him. I'd love to have my Tiger version of that, of course. I'm willing to settle, I think, for that 2019 Masters win, which, as I as I said before, was just so scintillating and emotional in a different way. Right, because he was both back to the Tiger, like the, the public and private Tiger were aligning again. Um, and there was also that uh, that echo. And like 
just like great cinematography of CBS, who I believe airs the Masters, right? That's of right. when he's like finally walking up with his son and like going, you know, and just oh, it's incredible. I, I understand that the setups at Augusta are the same every year, so it really just mirrors the Earl and Tiger when Tiger yeah. wins for the first time. Who perfectly, among but us like, who has a complicated relationship with their father wasn't in complete tears during like, that moment when he hugs Charlie? That was incredible. But like, also, I mean, again, that is that's like sports mythology. That's like a, that's amazing that that happened and that you have those two shots next to other you can't script it or you could it's what you would script but that is that's so satisfying but that is also he had spent 10 years like definitely not being perfect type a tiger like back behind and you were trying to reconcile the two and it was like very confusing and so I think sure a lot of people are just like much happier when he's just like really good at golf and we don't have to worry about him emotionally um I like I hope I hope he's well (laughs) I, I I think that's very smart. It did it basically did return us to late nineties Tiger when there were just there just wasn't as much intellectual baggage. It was just a pure enjoyment factor and um he was able to provide that. So just generally speaking, like how did you feel? Did you feel like the, the doc was satisfying? Did you like watching it? Do you learn I, about Tiger? I don't know if I learned about I I, I learned anecdotes because I ha- you know, I haven't read the book that this is, you know adapted from, I think in some parts. And I certainly watched some beautiful golf shots. I enjoyed it. And I think to the extent that like we have had interesting conversations about, you know, what about this and what about that? It was certainly thought provoking. I also, just as a note to HBO, which doesn't care about my opinion, because of the way I got the screeners, I watched part one, took an ice break for dinner and watched part two. And that was like a very satisfying event. And I think kind of doing back-to-back nights, which you originally thought it was. And I I think you kind of just like willed that into existence. But for me, that was like, it felt more of a piece. I didn't have as much time to focus on the spots that I was like, "Mm, maybe maybe this is a little soft here and there. Um, So it was certainly engaging. That's a, a very good point. And I think that is exactly what I did. I think I, because I watched it in a very similar fashion, I watched part one. Rachel, you could tell, sits down at the end of part one. And I was like, I have to watch part two right now. Mm-hmm. Of course, we're very fortunate to have screeners so we can watch part two instantaneously. And I don't know that instantaneously necessarily was essential for people on the night it came out. But I, I think you're right that Monday night, Sunday night, Monday night would have been a good plan. And I don't, I guess we'll, we'll see whether or not there was a sense that this kind of captured the conversation in the way that these kinds of films have to capture the conversations to kind of justify themselves in the public consciousness. I thought it was very well made. I th- I think Hamachek and Heinemann are really talented documentarians. Um, I think there was a natural roadblock because you just don't have access to the subject of the piece. And so invariably there are moments when you want to hear his voice and you just did not get to. But as far as like a portrait of a major figure's life, I thought it was successful to do what it set out to do. Um, and I think it's interesting to talk to people who don't maybe don't have a big relationship to Tiger to see what they think about it and whether it's effective for them or not. Because I do feel like it's probably most effective for someone who is a casual observer. Um, the serious fan probably has a fairly deep awareness of most of what's covered in the film. But speaking of two-part experiences... This is my elegant segue to our conversation Beautiful stuff. about WandaVision. Because over the weekend, the first two episodes of Disney Plus's first MCU entrant hit their service. And we're going to talk about it. Before we talk about it, I wanted to have a, a kind of a general conversation with you about Nick at Night. Because Nick at Night is really the, 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 the religion hovering over WandaVision. It is the, it is the cultural experience. It is the the, the visual framework, it's everything to this show, especially the first two episodes of this show. Because obviously WandaVision, as we'll get into, is an homage to TV shows over time. And there's a few, a few reasons, obviously, why it is that. But what's your relationship to Nick at Night? Did you watch it growing up? I did, and I didn't realize how much Nick at Night I had watched until you asked me that question. It, it's just something that was totally buried in like my subconscious or something. And now, since you asked me, and since I've seen these two episodes and have been like Googling Nick at Night, I've just had the Green Acres theme song in my head for like two days. <laughs> just like, I, I just keep singing it. Also, I feel like it's, you know, an apt theme song for this podcast, You're the Person on the Farm. Um, I'm Park Avenue, just so you know. Damn. Um, First time anybody ever accused me of being a farmer, <laughs> let me tell you. 
so yeah, I watched a lot of it in, I think like a pretty unsupervised and probably unexamined way. I just like Nickelodeon is what I watched, watched. I actually did watch a lot of TV, spent a lot of time with Hey Dude, spent a lot of time with Doug and Rugrats. And then at night just watched whatever they had. And then also there was a very important after, no one cares, but I just am reminiscing about my childhood. There was a very important afternoon TV block because before Saved by the Bell, um, TBS would show, I believe, Gilligan's Island and then Brady Bunch. So, and I was consuming all of that. So you're just talking about stuff you saw on TV when you were a kid now. <laughs> you you literally made a whole section of this podcast about that. Well, I think it's interesting because Nick at Night, is Nick at Night still extant? Is that a thing that people can experience? I know TV Land also was a, net, was a network that came out of that and was somehow connected. And there's like, I don't know if it exists in the way that it did 35 years ago, 30 years ago when we were growing up. Um, this, of course, but for those of you who don't know what it is, and I guess there are people out there who don't know what it is, it was the night block segment on Nickelodeon that aired old, mostly old sitcoms, old TV shows from the 50s, 60s, 70s. And I guess as we got older, in some respects, the 80s. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's it's sweet spot. The Nick and I sweet spot is probably like 1955 to 1975. That feels like the era of TV. So we're talking about I Love Lucy. We're talking about Ozzy and Harriet, Leave it to Beaver, Bewitched, The Dick Van Dyke Show, Donna Reed, The Brady Bunch, uh, Partridge Family. I Dream Genie. I Dream of Jeannie, definitely a signature. Green Acres, as you pointed out. There Mr. Were, there, Ed. Mr. Ed. There were a lot of shows. Um, that WandaVision is obviously clearly riffing on all of these shows, and some of them very particularly. I also watch Nick at Night all the time. I, I think I'm surprised as I think back on how much time I spent Nick at, watching Nick at Night. Because I think about my TV taste now, and it really has nothing to do with those kinds of shows. I really don't like kind of any traditional sitcoms at all. And I think maybe the whimsy of some of those shows I still relate to and I still connect with, but I probably was, am like more of a Twilight Zone person at this stage of my life and for the last 15 years than I am, say, a Leave it to Beaver person, like a conventional domestic sitcom. Yeah, but I mean, you're just like alighting a lot of TV and sitcoms and that like the, the sitcoms are on Nick at Night are, I think, were considered to be the best of their era and obviously like it's a genre that changes over time so no one's asking you to watch sheldon right now but you do like young which by the you mean which which like by the way i think no because i looked at the yeah you're right it is young sheldon okay (laughs) because i think that's what they're showing on nick and night now Please clip out the segment where amanda said you're right we're gonna need that just make sure you include it's young sheldon um I googled nickatnight.com. Here's the current lineup. Young Sheldon, Full House, Friends, and Mom. And I'm just saying sitcoms have evolved. You like you definitely watch sitcoms in the 90s. Like you watch Seinfeld and Friends and all of those I things did. and so it's the the type of humor that was funny in the 50s and what they're doing and like the Airsats version now it is I think very different. It it definitely is very different. Um, I think the more high concept shows of that time, particularly Bewitched and I Dream of Genie, I think as the two signatures obviously are going to be resonant for the first two episodes of the WandaVision experience. So you noted to me before we started recording that the outline that I put together for this WandaVision conversation is the craziest one I've ever put together. Um, I was genuinely taken aback when I opened it. I, I You sent it to me early and I'm just going to go ahead and say, and this is not going to be a surprise to anybody, but because I know Sean's interests, I did not do any research on WandaVision before I watched it. I decided to go in as like TV person as opposed to MCU person so that we could actually kind of, because I was going to have to play that role anyway. So because I still think of Vision as that guy with a stone in his head. So I lean into it. He's not so, a guy, but okay. Yeah, that's true. Though, you know what? I didn't know that when I started and the dialogue did effectively communicate that to me. Anyway, I just watched the two episodes and I opened this outline and I was like, what's happening? And is Sean okay? (laughs) I'm doing great. I'm doing great. The reason I put all of this information here and that I want to share it in this conversation is because my, my first reaction to WandaVision was, really? This is it? This is what you did? And I admit to just maybe not watching the show as closely as I should have the first time, or at least as much as it engaged me the first time. And I found myself not confused by it, 
maybe slightly disappointed, but more just like it's been a really long time since we've had an MCU, a Marvel thing to consume. And Marvel, you know, for all the criticisms that they're likely to receive, they eventize the shit out of things. The, the, the sense of importance around most of their stories, even with their most minor characters, is undeniable. There's big Alan Silvestri scores, movie stars, all this pomp and circumstance. And of course, this is what they promised us. It is a conventional 50s seeming sitcom style starring Scarlet Witch and Vision. And I was like, okay, well, they didn't lie. Um, Then I started to read about the show and I started to look into some of the Easter eggs. And then I started to go back into my comic book archives. And then I started to read stories about the show. And I realized, like, obviously, it's just like every other MCU thing, which I genuinely typically like, which is that they like they're stacking little tidbits of information in an effort to build a story over a period of time. So I got more excited about the show, which led to me dumping all this information into our conversation. That's just so depressing. Like everything that you just said was so depressing because, and I'm glad you found your, I'm glad you found your way to happiness, but you were just like, I watched a thing. It had like, I, I didn't like it because it was not like, that's fine. Actually, I'm not going to be rude to you. You didn't like a thing, and then you went and consumed like a bunch of other like corporatized culture stuff around it, and then you were like, okay, now I guess I like it more, but not because of the thing itself, just because of like the the world around it. I will say that I did not like the first two episodes, and I stand by that. I th- I found the f- the third episode, which was shared with journalists ahead of time, to be much more interesting and much more like a much more interesting conversation to have, which we obviously will not have here because that episode has not premiered yet. So maybe, you know, I'm sure we'll revisit the show as we get later through the season. Um, But I I still walked away from the first two episodes not really liking it, but actually just, I think ultimately became more intrigued by what it is that they were trying to do when I started thinking about what stories this was based on, where it could potentially go, what it means for the future of some of these movies that I like. So let's just, let's do some details. The show is created by Jack Schaefer and it's, every episode is directed by Matt Shackman, who is, the director of literally dozens of television shows over the years. He is one of the go-to filmmakers for getting a show like this on its feet or when your favorite show has a key episode. He's worked on everything from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia to Game of Thrones. And obviously the show is shepherded by Kevin Feige, who oversees all of the MCU and apparently is a lover of classic television. Um, Let's talk about Wanda and Vision. Because a couple weeks ago we were doing a pod, you it's some reference to Vision. You called him the guy with the stone in his head. You just did it 10 minutes ago. I mean, he's still the guy with the stone in his head. And then did they, I don't remember, did they like have to behead him in order to, you know, get it all in the gauntlet? I'm glad you asked. Would you like me to recap all of the? Yeah, go the, ahead. The goings on. Because I read the outline, but I don't remember. Okay. Uh, Wanda and Vision in the movies thus far have been pretty ancillary characters. You could, you could make the case that they're the most underserved characters through all of these Marvel movies that we've watched over the years. So the Scarlet Witch is Wanda Maximoff. She is a Sokovian refugee and also a superpowered witch who possesses the ability to alter reality and can shoot psionic energy blasts from her hands. She is really powerful. Like in the constellation of Marvel characters, Amanda, Scarlet Witch might be in the top five most powerful. I would say the movies have not done a good job of clarifying that. I just want to say you have like real Mallory in this superheroes draft energy right now. Well, it, the truth is, is that this is no, a part of me. This is a part of me. I know. Or at least I it know. was when I and, was more and, engaged in this And world. Mallory is one of the great thinkers and critics on this stuff. But superhero energy was when she just showed up with literally a 30-page spreadsheet of just like, you know, data about people's powers for like a joke that we did on YouTube. She She's definitely more of an expert on this stuff than I am. But I, I, I it takes me back. It's a little bit like there are a few things that are like this. Professional wrestling is like this. Comic books are like this. Nick at Night is like this. Things that were a big part of my childhood that I spent a lot of time memorizing, frankly, the worlds and understanding the scope of things. Like uh, horror fiction is another thing. We t- I talked about the Dracula class I took in college years ago. All, all of that stuff mattered to me a lot more then. And so it kind of just lives inside you. And the only time you get to make any use of it is either when you're watching Jeopardy or watching an MCU movie. Or I'm like in a, in a WWE rabbit hole on YouTube. So... Here we are. That's I have a, a chance to use it. It's either watching Jeopardy or watching a movie. That's such a 
like just think about how you're describing watching movies. Whatever. Keep two of my favorite things. Stuff. Keep my favorite telling things. me about. I know, but it's not a. It's it's not a trivia contest. Oh my god. Keep. That's going. true. That's true. Um, you don't know who Vision is. Vision is an android. He's. Not, I know he's, the show told me because yeah. the show actually has some exposition powers. But Jesus Christ, keep <laughs> telling me stuff. Are you mad? I just said, like, you've gone around the bed. Like, I am, like, you're both, like, dragging me into your deep psychosis. And also, like, I want, I want to pull you back. It's going to be okay. I'm, he's I'm, a robot. I, I, I feel great. I feel great about all of this. Okay. Um, he's a robot. He's a robot. He's a robot. He, the last we saw him, he was, he, he died. Thanos ripped the stone from his head mm. and, and killed him. That was at the end of Avengers Infinity War. And they didn't redo it? So what happened is is that Scarlet Witch actually took the stone from his head in in an attempt to save him. Thanos shows up. He uses the time stone. They go back in time to when Vision is still alive. And then he rips the stone from his head and kills him. So Vision is not in uh, Avengers Endgame. He's not a... Yeah, but they didn't do the thing like when they go back so Captain America can like live another life, you know? They didn't do that for Vision. Well, I mean, that's an honest... Honestly, a good question because I think it's relevant to what we're seeing on this TV show. Is is this an alternate reality? Is it a dream? Is it is this character going to c- come back into the MCU in some way? We honestly don't know. Um, so the Scarlet Witch does show up in Endgame. She has a big showdown with Thanos. It seems like she's going to make some hay and hurt him, and then she doesn't. That's where the famous "You took everything from me" line comes from. Which when Thanos responds because he's not the same Thanos that she had encountered in the past, and he says, "I don't even know who you are." which I like to apply to all marriage story memes. I think that's the best use of that, that dialogue. Um, and then at the end of Endgame, Thanos is, is vanquished and Scarlet Witch shows up at a funeral and she pays homage to Vision in addition to all the other people who died, including Tony Stark at the end of that movie. And then now we got this show. Um, a lot of people have pointed out, like I noticed this too, in reading about the show, there's like some movies you should rewatch before you look at this TV show. I, your mileage may vary on that. I'm sure you're not going to rewatch all this stuff. But then when I fired up Disney Plus late last night, I noticed that all the movies that people were saying you should rewatch these shows were all in the carousel. The carousel was just Avengers Age of Ultron, which is the movie that introduces Vision and, and, and introduces Scarlet Witch. Um, it was uh, Captain America Civil War. And it was Thor The Dark World and Avengers Endgame. So if you want to watch those movies again, get a sense of what's going on with those characters. Cool. Um, here's the thing about this before we get into the show itself. There's a lot of comic book stuff, like stuff that has happened in the comic books that appears to be happening in the show. That hasn't always been true of MCU stuff. But if you watch, like if you've read House of M, which is a, was a comic book series in 2005 written by Brian Michael Bendis, who's like one of the great comic book writers the last 25 years. I think that a lot of stuff that happened there is basically what the MCU is going to be. So if you, I'm not going to talk, I'm not going to spoil it or anything like that for you. And then you ultimately don't care, but it's interesting to me that they're very, it seems they seem to be very closely basing the early events here on something that like where we know a lot of the outcomes. And uh, it was always my understanding. I mean, I guess more, they just bring characters than actual plot lines from comics, but uh, they do bring plot lines, but they, the MCU has really tweaked them. And I guess we'll see if they're going to tweak them in this case. But they're already... I'll give you an example. There's a moment in the first episode of this show, and this is an Easter egg that many people have pointed out, where when the dinner sequence is happening near the end of the episode, there's a bottle of wine that is being poured on the table. The bottle of wine is has a label that says uh, Maison du Mepris, which is a is code for House of M. Um they're like already signaling to fans like you guessed it. This is where we're going. And House of M is like a very big story that features not just the Avengers, but the X-Men and a whole bunch of other characters we haven't seen in this world before. And Scarlet Witch is is at the center of that story. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that is like this that I didn't pick up on the first time I watched it. And so you may feel like I'm around the bend and kind of losing my mind a little bit. But it is the kind of thing that got me psyched about what they may be doing here. No, I don't think that that's the around the bend part, but let's just keep going. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Okay, Sean, top three movie snacks of all time, go. Um, all right, let me think. Uh, popcorn? Obviously. Hmm. Ice cream? That's two. 
Oh, and uh, Reese's peanut butter cups, of course. Peanut butter and chocolate is a pretty perfect combination. Some may even say the ultimate movie snack. You can't argue with that. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. Spring is such a refreshing time of year. Flowers are blooming and you're getting your house in order. But now is also a good time to take a second look at your wireless plan because you might be overpaying. Right now, Mint Mobile has unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash bigpick. That's mintmobile.com slash bigpick. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Walmart Plus. With a Walmart Plus membership, you'll save on movie night. A Paramount Plus subscription is included, so you never run out of things to watch. Plus, you get free delivery on all your favorite essentials. And you even get gas discounts to save on picking up your friends. Walmart Plus members save on all this, plus so much more. Start a free 30-day trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus Essential Plan only. Separate registration required. $35 order minimum. See walmart.com slash plus for details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. So now let's talk about the show. So the show is, like I said, it's this homage to 50s and 60s sitcoms. The first episode is I Love Lucy and Leave it to Beaver and that slightly more conventional late 50s style of show. And then the second episode feels more like Bewitched, Genie, Dick Van Dyke. Um, what'd you what what'd you think of the show? Did you like WandaVision? I thought it was very clever and charming and was immediately like, that means it's a failure. Cause like I like mm. I genuinely think if I'm like, oh, this is kind of interesting and I see what they're doing. And you know, by the end of the second episode, there's like the beekeeper villain coming up from the the um, sewer. And so obviously they're rolling out the larger NCU plot lines. Um so it it has that MCU flavor, but they're presenting it in a different way. And I thought the performances were very charming and the production value and the way that they kind of, they recreate and send up a lot of these sitcoms was well executed. At least, you know, I mean, it's like 20 minutes. There's a, it's not, the first two episodes are not particularly like, solemn, significant end game level events. But also I did know that they were going to, it was going to be a 50s sitcom. So I had some reference, Um, you know, and I thought in terms of like, to me, there are basically three types of superhero stories. There is the, we got to kill a bad guy. And the, who am I? What does it mean to be a superhero? Both in terms of like your responsibilities as a superhero, your origin story, or like how you relate to the world. And then there's the, like, we got to meet up with other superheroes and, like, fight some bad guys. So this is squarely a number two, but it's kind of interesting, right? Because it is it is asking a lot of those same questions and how do you, like, be normal and, like, how do you, what is your cover story and what what do you mean to each other? But, like, in a visually interesting kind of funny way. And I do also think it's an interesting comment kind of on TV sitcoms as mythology, like, that what is the quote American family is a very complicated thing, but for a long time, like TV sitcoms were how people worked that out. And so then you put a, let me get this right, which and an AI creature in the various sitcoms. And you're asking a lot of those questions. I don't know. I think it's really clever. I think it's what absolutely no one who knows all of the facts that you just listed in this outline and on like the podcast, like wants at all. Well, okay. So, what you just described is literally the reason why I wanted to talk about it on this show, despite the fact that 
you're not historically the biggest Marvel fan, and we don't talk about TV shows on this podcast most of the time, um, although that is increasingly changing, obviously, given what's been going on in the world and what's been happening to the world of entertainment. But the reason I want to talk about it is I was like, I think actually Amanda will have a lot to say about this. I think it's potentially more appealing to Amanda than it is even to me. And you heard me go through my spiel about like how I got myself more interested in what they were up to here, because when I think about the MCU and when I think about the movies that they've made, you could probably suss this out from hearing the way that I talk about them versus the way that I would talk about Mank or Bakurao or any other, never really, sometimes, always. It's like the MCU is not like filmmaking in my mind. It's entertainment. It's a very specific kind of entertainment and it's very plot driven and it's very character focused. And I'm interested in the machinations behind those plots and the development of those characters and when they're introduced and when they're not introduced. And in this show, these first two episodes of this show, it didn't really serve my interests in this product, but it did come more close to, I think, what you, would be interesting to you in terms of maybe some of the satire, in terms of the commentary on different entertainment forms, and even in terms on like how we get to know and understand these characters. Yeah, I was going to say, in terms of character development, this is what it is. It's it's all character development. And I, like... Again, I barely knew who these people were, and I kept just calling Vision a guy. I honestly didn't remember that she was the Scarlet Witch until, like, I I knew she was special, but I couldn't have told you her name until episode two at the end. I was like, oh, yeah, Scarlet Witch. I remember (laughs) that. I was very proud of myself. Um, But you learned little things about them, and you're kind of figuring out, you're like, okay, so I guess they're in the 50s and that was that's before this. You, you have learned in MCU land to understand that things are happening at different times that you're jumping around. And a sitcom, above all else, is about just like hanging out with a group of people. Like that is the, the thrust of the whole thing. And I think I was surprised because, you know, I understood MCU fandom as you described it. So like find out what happens, plot. And I think... An essential part of the plot that is not featured here is also to find out what happens and what happens is like things being blown up. You know, I think like we underestimate like the spectacle in totally. terms of the appeal and there there isn't that spectacle in these two episodes. Um, and then, but I, I also thought like spending time with these characters is like very important to people. But I suppose that there is a specific way that people want to spend time with these characters and maybe this isn't it. I I don't know. I, I, I looked on twitter today and i should say we're recording this on a friday and the show wasn't trending which relative to say the mandalorian would is is a change and i think as the episodes go on that's going to change because there's going to be more and more revelations but so much of the entertainment gambit is how can you stoke a conversation about your show to get more and more people to tune in now obviously anything that's in the mcu has a natural advantage because there's a curiosity and there's a high level of awareness around all the stuff that they make But to start with two episodes that are like this, that are certainly like a little bit surreal and a little bit off and have indications that there's something not right under the surface. But if you're not paying very close attention, just kind of seem like a cute homage to I Love Lucy, um, I I think is kind of a risk. And it it being successful with casual viewers, but maybe less successful with fans, I think is interesting. And I do think that a lot of fans will have the same reaction that I did, which is like flocking to the internet to see like, why is this like this? I should just say, I I thought it was interesting and charming. I think a major mistake, and I know this is not the Disney playbook, but for both a sitcom and for the way that this particular sitcom is telling its story, you got to release everything at once. You like you have to because then there's a forward momentum and people aren't going to be mad about the fact that the beekeeper guy who I'm sure is someone and you know like all the names of his children um, like doesn't show up and that you have to wait a week. I, I think stringing people out for 20 minute episodes in a with a lot of zingers just is not how anyone consumes television anymore and it's not how people consume comedy anymore. Like the you know Office is the most streamed show far and away just because people just mainline episode after episode of a comedy. But anyway, like I enjoyed it, but it's, will I finish this show unless we decide to talk about it on this podcast? I have no idea. There's no urgency in it without, um, without that forward plot and without the kind of simultaneous release. 
So it's it's not spoiling anything to say that there is significant amount more urgency as we get to the end of the third episode. And so that actually was what I wanted to say was I think if rather I don't think they needed to release all nine episodes at once. I think, in fact, the Mandalorian showed us that you don't have to do that necessarily to keep fan bases engaged. So long as you are spring loading every episode with a OMG, did you see this moment? You know, that really was one of the achievements of that show. In addition to like capturing the Star Wars aesthetic and being fun as a week to week adventure show, they kind of gave you a little a little nibble on the Star Wars high level fandom conversation experience every single time or almost every single time the these first two episodes don't do that the third episode does and so i it was interesting that they it was almost as if disney sensed that critics might say what you're saying having just watched the two episodes and they wanted to make sure that they could say don't worry hang on it's going to get more marvelly i promise and that's fascinating to me now from that moment in the third episode we'll see whether it lives up to that proposition but I think there's an understanding that this show is not just a standalone experience that what's being introduced here, which is probably the reason that these characters are trapped in these TV experiences is because they're in some kind of simulation or some kind of alternate reality or some kind of dream state. And that that is then going to be reflected in, for example, Dr. Strange and the multiverse of madness, the next Spider-Man movie, which we know is going to feature all of the Spider-Men over the years, which is also a reflection of this idea of multiple universes or that, you know, like the idea of characters breaking inside of the experience shows us that the meta fiction aspect of what they're doing here is, isn't, isn't really happening, I guess is the point. And so like if, if a show isn't really happening, but you also have to watch it to understand what's going to happen in the future, there's a, a kind of a paradox to that experience. It's like the nature of the more, more, more content gambit, where it's like, we got to have more hours. We got to have more stuff like this, but how can we do it so that we move at a pace where we don't go get too far ahead of ourselves? So I think that's another interesting part of the show where it's essential to understanding where they're going, but it doesn't feel essential to our lives for lack of a better word. Yeah. It is so interesting though, that it's just I'm sure it'll ultimately be essential. Like the, you know, the beekeeper guy. Who is the beekeeper guy? You want to just tell me? I literally don't know who you're talking about. Okay. Like the man that comes out of the sewer. Oh, yeah. I I, I don't know who that is. Okay. Well, congratulations to beekeeper guy. That's your official name. Um, he shows up and I was like, oh, all right. So they're going to do all of the Marvel stuff. And and there are Easter eggs that I, I didn't catch one. Don't worry, guys. But other people did. Everything's there in the episode. It's very clear they there's gonna be a plot there's gonna be a, like mcu information you're gonna have that experience and it's it's really wild and like a little depressing to me that quite literally 40 minutes of someone's life spent watching what i thought was like a pretty charming thing with like great comedic performances by elizabeth olsen and paul bettany and Catherine hahn shows up and tiana paris and like it was just very charming and you get to spend more time with characters who you like, who are owned by like a mega conglomeration, but whatever, it's fine. They're your friends. Like that, that is not acceptable that like even 40 minutes, people are just kind of like, this isn't what I want from this. And I need the other thing. And every single moment needs to be going for it. It's like, it's really intense, man. Like it's just, it's a lot. I don't want to project that on all viewers. I I'll just, I'll speak for myself. And that's, and that is because of the way that I describe the relationship I have to it, which is just that, it is an engine of plot in many ways, and it is an engine of expectation. And there's obviously lots of danger with that in the way that we consume stuff, because then we can't necessarily take away a kind of creative intent, have any enjoyment. You know, everything becomes part of this ongoing narrative. But you know, it's like it's a real I am who I am situation. I'm kind of stuck with this mentality. Totally. I just I, I think I walked away from being like, oh, huh, they tried something. Hey, look at them, you know, and and some of it works more than others. And like, it's fine. They're all going to come home to the big machine in the sky at some point. But like, they're they're trying to think. But it seems like there's not room for experimentation. And and, and in some ways, of course, there's not. Because what phase is it in Marvel at this This point? This is, I guess, ostensibly phase four. Right. You, You can't. There's too much on the line. With the machine. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I suppose, such as it is. But it feels really um, just narrow, like kind of what, what the, the way they have room to maneuver. 
I, I don't think that this is a huge risk in that respect. Like, I don't think that there, I, I certainly think more people are going to watch this show than almost any show that comes out in the next three months. Um, and even if you read online, you could see just based on watching Google trends and things like that, the anticipation for this is extremely high, which then I think leads to a kind of a conversation about like, was this worth it or not? I think as the season goes on, people will get more and more excited about it. The closer we get to more Marvel movies, people will get excited about it. I guess... Let me let me use a very specific example of an Easter egg that I think would get people excited to, and see if this even occurred to you as you were watching it. At some point, mm-hmm. I believe it's in the second episode, um, Wanda goes outside of her house and she sees in the bushes a toy helicopter. And right, the helicopter, but it's in color. It's in color. It's yellow and red. And on the helicopter, there's an insignia. We see this insignia, late, I think, in another episode of the show as well. And it's the insignia of a, an important kind of Marvel entity. Were you looking at that thinking like, well, what does this mean to the story? Or is this just a a, a faux surreal flourish? No, this is so interesting because, because I obviously knew that it was essential to the story. It's something from the other world, you know, and it, that's a signal. It's like, OK, someone knows where they are and like something's going to heat up. But did I see the insignia or know that it was like a special Marvel thing? And that means that it's going to like this character is going to show up and then we're going to go to X, Y, Z. And it'll be like, you know, the 18th issue of what? Like, no, I have no idea. I But so it did work for me in terms of storytelling. And I was, you know, content enough to be within the world of the thing itself. Um, I thought that was effective. Can I, a related thing? Yeah. So the, um, the mean girl who's the head of the neighborhood association, the mean woman, I should say, but she's like a real mean girl vibe. So when she actress Emma Caulfield, yeah. Yes. When she cracks the glass, her blood is also red. So I assume that she's a superhero villain, right? I don't know. The only place I know Emma Caulfield from is when she played Susan Keats on Beverly Hills, 90210 in the nineties. Okay. I don't, I don't don't know that character. I, I will tell you, there are two characters in particular on this show who are ostensibly really important to the Marvel mm-hmm. story. One of them, maybe kind of, but almost certainly is Agnes, who's played by Catherine Hahn, who is probably Agatha Harkness, who is essentially Scarlet Witch's mentor. And then at times her enemy and is like a, is a pretty important and she's a much older woman in the comics. And she's has a relationship to like Salem and the Salem witch trials. She's like a historical witch. And she she the the costume design and the name and everything is all too close for it to not be her so i'm assuming that that's where it's going that's another thing that like when i was watching the show i was like is this agatha harkness and then i went online and everybody was like oh that's definitely who it is so i think it's like not a bad thing to have that kind of relationship and then secondarily you might remember the young black girl in captain marvel monica rambeau who i think was the um captain marvel's friend's daughter Mm-hmm. And, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Captain Marvel takes place in the 90s and Monica oh. Rambeau gro- grows up in the present day to become Tiana Paris and then Monica Rambeau in the Marvel comics is a superhero. She she's actually been a number of different superheroes over the years. So and you know people will see as the show goes on how these characters like evolve basically. But there's all these little dots, you know that insignia on that helicopter is the insignia of a, a division of the the organization that Nick Fury, the Samuel Jackson character, is in called Sword. It's like the Shield in space. So it's something. It's like, that's like an organization that is happening in space. So now it's like, is this now going to be a space story? Is are they in a manifestation of real life slash TV in space? All this stuff is kind of under the surface of the show, but you don't need to know it because you know they're going to explain it when they feel that they need to. But it, for someone like me. It, it honestly was fun to have like a post-game deep dive around what they may be driving at. Yeah, I was just also going to say you don't need to know because the show is like introducing tensions and questions within the confines of the show itself. I'm really mad that I didn't get any credit for noticing that the the mean woman bled real blood and is almost certainly has weird powers and that there's good. Like, that's great. Like, give me a gold star for understanding narrative tension in a superhero does she thing. I, we don't know if she does. Pro- well, if she doesn't, then the logic of this universe doesn't add up. And I would like to hear from the creators because I paid attention. So I think that I'm not totally sure what that means. Um, I think the idea that the real world could occasionally invade 
this created reality is more is closer to what that represents. Like every time you see color, it means that Wanda is having a kind of intellectual experience that recognizes that she's in something that is not not actually happening. That that was my read of it. I could be wrong. I mean, Emma Caulfield could come back into the show and she could be a super villainous. I I'm not totally sure. Um, you you did you did mention the names Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany, and I feel like maybe we should just talk about them a little bit since the whole show is them in in more ways than one. Um, they're both really good in this, and they have not been get really given a chance to do anything in most of these MCU movies other than look majestic or angry. And I thought Elizabeth Olsen in particular is an actress I've always liked, but has definitely never had a chance to do something like this, which is so particularly comic and affected and kind of winning. And I thought she was great. I agree. I thought that they were very charming. I always thought that they were some of the more charming parts of the, I guess, Infinity War. I was like, I liked their storyline and then I was sad. And then I didn't remember what happened. Um, but they have great chemistry. I mean, the the magic, the talent show, the magic act, very funny. Like that is a well-written like well performed, great comic timing. It, it's good jokes. Like uh, you know, you have to up the Annie every single time with another way that he screws it up, and she has to correct it. And like that's funny. And then her little shimmies is she's like playing to the crowd. Great stuff. Where are you at on Paul Bettany in general? I I'm very pro. I think. Um, you know, for years he was. I, a very celebrated kind of like number two guy, you know, he was always like not necessarily the best friend, but like very, very rarely at the center of a movie, but very reliable kind of handsome character actor. And I just pulled up his Wikipedia page and this is how he's introduced on Wikipedia. Paul Bettany born May 27, 1971 is an English American actor. He is known for his role as Jarvis and vision in the Marvel cinematic universe films, Iron Man, Iron Man Two, the Avengers, Iron Man three Avengers, Age of Ultron, Captain America, Civil War, and Avengers Infinity War, as well as in the Disney Plus show WandaVision. So this guy, who's been a very good actor for a number of years in Hollywood and is classically trained London theater actor as well, the first three sentences of his Wikipedia bio are like, this guy is a robot in these movies. It's pretty funny how like what happens to people's careers when they get into this, into this mainframe. Sean, look at the outline you just made. Like, of course, that's how it happens, my guy. I know it's interesting. It's fascinating. What do you think about um? This is way off topic, but the insinuation that perhaps Chris Evans would be coming back to the MCU as Captain America. Did you think that was sad? Did you think it was exciting? How do you think it will interfere with his ability <laughs> to portray the, Buzz Lightyear? Say, but is it is he coming back as Captain America, or is he coming back as the inspiration for the Captain America character in the biopic of Captain America, real life, not Steve Rogers or something? Uh, I, whatever he wants. I mean. I I watched every episode of Defending Jacob and I like that he tried and probably he needs to go back to what he's good at. Was there anything else about WandaVision that you actively liked or responded to? No, I feel like I talked for a long time. I mean, I like that I liked that they tried stuff. I I do think especially the first episode, if you don't know what's going on and if you're not playing to the easter eggs, it it can feel a little SNL skitty and just like, hey, we're doing these characters, you know, but in this other way. But everything feels a little SNL skitty at some point and you just have to buy in or not buy in. Yeah, I think um, more specifically, that's a sitcom without a B-plot, right? Like, I thought Alan Sepinwall put it really well in his review of the show. He wrote, there's less story than there is time to fill. It it just, it just most sitcoms, Seinfeld, for example, there was always a plot that maybe involved Jerry and Elaine and then another plot that involved Kramer. And we would toggle between these two stories in this show, which is only 22 minutes, it's Wanda and Vision, and that's the whole show. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's the one thing that is not conventionally sitcom-y. Um, and so it it did kind of drag a little bit in the first couple, to for me personally. But maybe that's, I think that is as much a, a reflection of the fact that I'm just not as interested in watching sitcoms at this stage of my life. Maybe I'll feel differently when we get later into the series. Yeah, I again, I like that they tried. I think it I don't know whether it will be interesting to see how they pull it all together for me personally because if it does become it's like a simulation and they have to like go to each sitcom in order to get, you know, the famous TV couch in order to build like the infinity 
I don't know, sofa warehouse or whatever, that won't be interesting. But if they if they can pull it off, I I again, I think it's cool that they're trying to invent new ways to tell these stories. Um, I, I think it's interesting that most people who really are passionate about these stories are not interested in that experimentation and kind of want more of the same. And I think that's also a real tension point for them, not just because of the types of projects that they have at this point, but also just because they're going to have to make more TV shows because it's going to be very hard to make movies at endgame scale for the next couple of years, at least. Well, so I, I, I mean, I think you're suggesting something that may or may not be true. Like I listened to Charles Holmes on TV concierge with Van Lathan. They talked about the show and they're both comic book guys. Like I am, they're both big fans of the MCU. And I think Van was very enthusiastic. And Charles, I think was a little bit closer to my reaction, which is like, is this it? I'm not totally sure if this is it. And he obviously wants to be optimistic about it going forward, just as I do. But I don't know if that's going to be true across the board. I think that this show also suffers from the same thing that every show and movie and anything that we experience suffers from, which is the first reaction is always like, WandaVision is a great leap forward for the MCU storytelling. And it's extraordinary to watch them make a David Lynchian style magnum opus. And I look at those tweets that are released 11 days before the show comes out. And I'm like, like, who is this helping? This is, this is kind of like only hurting the show to put it in this kind of context, because you know, this is not, this is not a David Lynchian style TV show. I, you know, like, let's be honest here. No, it's not. And I think another thing to keep in mind is that this was not supposed to be the first MCU thing back since Endgame, right? There was it's certainly Black Widow and Definitely. maybe another project or two that were Falcon not Falcon and Winter of. Soldier might have been also scheduled at right. one point to come first. So this is bearing like a lot of weight chronologically, just kind of in terms of buildup, in terms of fan enthusiasm. And I think also first thing back from Endgame, which just implies like... We're we're back, baby, in the really like traditional MCU sense, which I think that you were missing a bit. And if this was like just kind of, you know, we'd done all of our normal big ticket blockbuster stuff, and this was just kind of like a lark on the side, and it, you know, eventually ties in, but you give them a little room to do some of their stuff, I maybe the reception would be maybe it would have like a different place in the constellation. I think some of that early noise was more a manifestation of seeing what happens in episode three. And there is like one particular plot strand that is, is weird. It's not, it's certainly not normal seeming in the, in the, even in this structure, but it's not like an interrogation of the violence that underlies the suburban experience in America. You know, it's not, it doesn't really do what David Lynch stories do because it can, I mean, it's an MCU story, you know, it has to be actually significantly more accessible. I think it's neat that people want to, pretend that it has some sort of influence there that like you know Matt Shackman watched Twin Peaks for a year nonstop before getting ready to make this but the truth is is he probably just watched um, with good reason Bewitched and the Brady Bunch and the Facts of Life as he embarked on a number of like replicating decades of network television um, what is the one era of TV that you're most looking forward to WandaVision aping if, if you continue to watch the show great question I mean, let's see them do a Rugrats episode, you know, like go for it. Get Lil and Phil in the mix. Why aren't Lil and Phil Avengers? Okay. How about that? Great take. Um, This really flies in the face of your feelings on animation though. Yeah, but I'm a child of the nineties. Like I've, I've also, there was, there was an if attached to that, which is if you keep watching though, like, obviously I would watch a Rugrats episode. I watched Doug. I watched Rugrats. I watched like, obviously, Hey dude, was it? Oh, Clarissa explains it all. I was about to say Claudia explains it all, but Claudia is from Babysitter's Club. That would have been a shameful error. And also, uh, Mixed Up Files, Mrs. Baisley, Frank Weller. I I mean, I was raised on this stuff. So, sure. Lil and Phil. Um, I think it's actually fairly easy to keep watching this show because every episode is like 24 minutes, which is... true, but am I going to remember to log on to Disney Plus every week? Like, I might not, Sean. I don't know. I, I really... What I if understand. I have a really good tweet about WandaVision and you see it? I and don't you look think, at your God, tweets. Sean so has such good tweets. I should check I this out. Won't do that. Maybe <laughs> I'll wait till the end and then check them out. I mean, I think it's pleasant. I really do think they could have done this and like it's three and a half hours. It's basically a movie, but it's not. 
and people love to just sit and watch it. There's honestly nothing better than a 20 or 30 minute streaming show. Please make all streaming shows 20 or 30 minutes. And then I watch all of them immediately. There's something very snackable about them. So I think that's a super missed opportunity, but um, I'll check in if they do a Rugrats app. Okay. I think that pretty much does it for us. There's any any final thoughts about what would what would be your preferred uh, era of television? Thanks for asking me. I really appreciate that. You're so um, welcome. Well, I I guess it would be a Seinfeld esque '90s Friends yeah. kind of experience. I think that would be fun. I based on what I've read, it doesn't sound like they're going to necessarily be doing that. I think because this is a, also a domestic comedy, it's much more about families as opposed to ironic hipsters living in big cities which was a very was very okaran uh, in the in the in that 90s period so it sounds like maybe roseanne would be more of the template for the 90s show but um i'm looking forward to it i'm obviously going to watch every minute they should make the avenger friends but the avengers i'd watch that but that is what they that is what the mcu did like that's the whole innovation is they were like we and should just make this like a sitcom but also with explosions Right, and then I just fast forward through the explosion. So that's why I'm just like, give me like a will they, won't they over three seasons. Yeah. But you know, and you remember and the like, shawarma thing, or maybe I don't know if you saw the stinger in the original Avengers, but like it ends with them yeah. eating shawarma. Like that was yeah, the, that was them being like, this is our must see TV MCU. Right, I'm just let, let's. I'm open to that. Okay, I'm open to it too. Uh, we honestly have no idea what we're going to talk about later this week on the big picture. But in the meantime, we're going to figure it out. And when we figure it out, I hope you will tune in because we're going to be here later this week. Thank you, of course, to Bobby Wagner. Amanda, thanks for checking out WandaVision. I think you should stick with it. Okay, thanks, Sean. I'll let you know. Okay. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.